From the Hype HQ studio in Chicago, Illinois, it's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Raj Nation, and I am the founder of Startup Hype Man. Fast-growing startups work with me because they want to become better storytellers. Whether that's for customers, investors, or a packed audience, they know that story is their ticket to stand out, stand apart, and change the game. And this podcast here is where I talk with entrepreneurs and leaders in the startup ecosystem, ranging from scale stage to early stage, as they share specific strategies that they have executed to stand out across three specific areas, sales, marketing, and people. Before we begin today's episode, remember you can head to StartupHypeMan.com and subscribe to the newsletter that doesn't suck. You'll get new podcast episodes and timely reads written by me, but also helpful articles from around the web and a notice of upcoming pitch competitions. All right, let's dive in and hear how today's guest is changing the game. Ladies and gentlemen, making his way to the microphone from Silver Lake, Ohio in the greater Akron area and currently residing between both Sarasota, Florida and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He is an author, an investor, and a professor. Please welcome Sean Amirati. So that is definitely the best introduction I've ever had on a podcast. So thanks so much. I might uh, get you to do a little intro for Agile Giants going forward. That was amazing. Yeah. That was awesome. Maybe, maybe anytime, as I've told some guests before, anytime you enter a room, you just play that. I'm thinking that may happen. That's amazing. <laughs> that was awesome. Thank you. He is Sean Amirati. He is a longtime seed stage investor in both SaaS and digital marketplace. Some of his past investments have included No Wait, which was acquired by Yelp, Umano, which was acquired by Dropbox, amongst dozens of others. He's also a distinguished service professor of entrepreneurship at Carnegie Mellon University's Tepper School of Business, where he teaches courses on entrepreneurship, the lean, lean startup model, as well as others. And I don't know if most importantly, but perhaps most famously, Sean is known as the author of a book called The Science of Growth, which is a bestseller in both the United States and Korea. It's also been translated to Mandarin. And The Science of Growth unpacks, well, as the title says, why do some companies scale while other companies stall when they compete in the same market? And so today in our conversation, we're going to focus on a specific aspect within that book. And I've been reading it uh, leading up to this conversation. It's been fantastic so far. And I recommend anyone coming out of listening to this picks up a copy themselves. It's available on Amazon. Uh, it's available through Audible as well. So from the book, there's an actually a specific section about this idea of growth catalyzing events. And that's what our topic today is. It is about the science specifically of these massive growth catalyzing events for successful companies. Now, Sean, can you let our listeners know a little bit of an abstract on why this was part of your book and why this has been part of your research in the past and why you believe it's important? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, again, just thanks for having me on the podcast here. And I think a lot of what we're going to talk about today is really going to resonate with your audience because when you think about messaging and how messaging impacts both sales, uh, raising capital, helping entrepreneurs know how to position themselves, a lot of the, the benefits of doing this well are exactly what we're going to talk about around catalyzing events, right? Because at the highest level, the research that we did showed that startups go through roughly three phases. They go through this first phase where they satisfy prerequisites. 
they go through the second phase where once those prerequisites are satisfied, but only once those prerequisites are satisfied, they catalyze their growth or they change the slope of the line of the rate at which they were growing. And then once they've gone through those first two steps, they then do these, these set of five best practices that we see all of them doing just to maintain that growth rate so that they can ultimately dominate. But the question that we really started looking at with, science, with what ultimately became went from an independent study course to a course on campus to a book. And now other schools do use this text as well for their entrepreneurship classes. What ultimately started all of this was this question, why do some companies scale up while others stall out? And part of what I observed creating the lean entrepreneurship class on campus is that we had gotten really good at what I call prerequisite phase or what, uh, if you're from the lean startup methodology, maybe you think of as this this build, measure, learn cycle to ultimately achieve product market fit, right? A good product that solves a real problem in a differentiated way in a good market. That's sort of the, the, the rough summary of product market fit. But you, know, you have lots of entrepreneurs listening to this podcast and following you. Think about when people start a business. I've yet to meet an entrepreneur who says, you know what I want to do when I grow up? I want to start a business that gets to product market fit. Right? <laughs> What they say is, I want to start a business to change the world. I want to start a, a business to transform, you know, this part of, a, of an industry or this part of kind of how we live, work. And their ambition is much, much larger and broader than product market fit. Yet, and we looked at 10 case studies within the book. But when you look at these cases, the interesting thing is that often somebody else got the product market fit first, but they then stubbed their toe somewhere along the way or sometimes more dramatic than that, which kept them from ultimately scaling up and doing it, right? I'm, I'd be willing to bet almost everybody listening to this podcast has a Facebook uh, account. I'd also I bet almost, <laughs> yeah, I bet almost nobody listening to this account has a Friendster account, Yeah. right? Right. Yet if you think about it, you know, and, and it's not that Jonathan wasn't, wasn't successful and he's gone on to do lots of other things. But, you know, when he started Friendster, his ambition was the same as Mark's. But Mark did certain things and, and the, the team and the way they managed that business that ultimately had them really change the world. Some would argue for the better, some would argue for the worse, but that's sort of not the point right now. But they changed the world because of what they did. And what happens is that happens at step two and step three of this three-step process. And yet, I think what's happened is We've gotten really good at talking about this first phase, this idea to product market fit. And then we just kind of assume magic and or luck is what helps you win or lose from that. And that is just, that's just not the case. Let's, we're going to dive a lot more into this. And I think it's a fascinating topic. Before we do that, let's learn a little bit more about you, Sean. I'm curious. So, you know, you're now a professor, an author, an investor. You've also spent time as an entrepreneur yourself yep. with a couple of successful companies under your belt. I'm curious, actually, if you just think back, like in your life overall, what was your first entrepreneurial experience? And perhaps to help almost give better context to that, for me, I'm pretty sure it was like in third grade, my neighbor and I decided to one day, like just pull a bunch of crap out of our respective garages and have like a mini garage sale that no one bought yeah. anything from. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Right. So, so I have sort of two answers to that question. One, my parents were entrepreneurs. They started a business, um, a distribution business that sold fitness equipment, which they ultimately sold was called Fitness Wholesale. So anything under about $100 that you would 
see in a gym, you know, Dynaban, Matt, Steps, that they were a, a middleman distributor kind of pre-internet, right? So they would send these 60-page catalogs <laughs> to health clubs and, you know, here's all the equipment you need. And then when the web came along, I helped them. I was, you know, I was young. I helped them sort of turn that into, build a website with them. And they ultimately, uh, ultimately did a lot direct to consumer. Um, but so I watched them build that while I was growing up, right? They started that business when I was a second grader. So, you know, I sort of watched that happening. They also, because they were running that business and they were running it out of our house, we had a bunch of computers way earlier than most people had computers. And so I started programming at a pretty young age and sort of my first experience myself uh, doing kind of entrepreneurial things was right around Y2K. If you remember in Y2K, like basically anybody, including a monkey, if they could write code, they were valuable. Because the programming was simple, but it had to be done back then by a human. So you would go through and you would basically take date variables and change them from two-digit to four-digit variables and then make sure you didn't break anything else when you did that, right? I mean, that was literally the extent of the project. But yeah. there were, you know, millions and millions yeah, well, of Yeah, well, to help save the world from crashing, right? <laughs> right, that was at least the, the pitch that everybody was making. And so I wasn't even 16 yet, so I couldn't even drive. But the guy who wrote a lot of code for my parents basically hired me as a subcontractor to go by and, and help update codes in all of these different organizations, which was fascinating because, you know, I mean, like, I think I was 14. I had someone send a, a car to help me go fix their system one Saturday morning, right? Meet him there and everything. <laughs> yeah. But like, it was a fascinating chance because all of a sudden at a pretty young age, like I got a chance to see how business worked and spend time with people, which was just an incredible privilege. And it, and it really uh, ended up kind of shaping me in some interesting ways as well. Plus, you know, my buddies were working at like the pizza shop. I'm writing code and all of a sudden I'm realizing like, wait, this, this sort of creative knowledge work as an entrepreneur, that's a lot more fun if you can do it than, than these other things. And so that sent me down this <laughs> path of doing, you know, many other things over the, over the next kind of couple decades. Went to Carnegie Mellon for grad school, started the the three startups that you mentioned, sold those and now invest and, and write and all the teach at Carnegie Mellon, all that stuff. Sticking with that theme of the mid late nineties and yes. being early on computers and, and the internet and all that stuff. I have to imagine that you had an AOL account. Is, is that a fair assumption? Sure. And, and okay. before that a prodigy account, but yeah, okay. absolutely. Prodigy. Yeah. Wow. I don't even remember that one. Yeah. Uh, what was your AOL screen name and was there any like re rationale behind it? Uh, it was, I think my initials and the school I went to in some random number. It was, it was not a, it was not like a very rational thing. Like it's interesting. And I think this influenced how I like kind of everything I've done. After. Like I'm, I find consumer tech fascinating, but, but I think, what I was doing early on, whereas like most people about my age, like they were doing a lot of consumer web stuff and playing video games and things like that. Yeah. Because of this weird quirk of doing the Y2K stuff and then seeing business technology when I was like 14, 15, like I've always been much more interested in enterprise and enabling tech. And, <laughs> and so like, I'm laughing because it's like, it's funny to think of like as a 14 year old, you're interested in enterprise technology. No, but I, but I was, I was fascinated, right? So I'm, because all of a sudden I realized like, wait, why is this guy's business that I'm helping, again, do the most basic, I mean, to call it programming is almost an exaggeration. Like, it's almost proofreading, right? You're 
you're reading through, oh, there's a, there's a two-digit variable for a date. Let's make it four-digit. Let's recompile, make sure it doesn't break anything. But, but I'm doing this inside these large industrial businesses. And it's like, well, why is John's business so much more successful than the other businesses in this development? Oh, because he's using technology you know, we didn't have terms like this right now, but back then, but basically he's doing digital transformation start of his company before the, you know, his, his peers in the, the same office park, same industrial park, that kind of thing. So later when I went to Carnegie Mellon, I got really into AI as well. And, and the AI stuff sort of thrust me pretty intensely into media because, you know, AI, that was sort of one of the early spaces that sort of rounded out some of these skills. But like my, I bet I'm sure you were on AOL and Prodigy more than I was. Well, maybe not, maybe not Prodigy, but I'm not sure Prodigy, you were on AOL. Yeah, I was on AOL, AOL more, a lot. more than more than I was because, <laughs> like, I would get on there. It's like this is kind of fun, but you know, if I go help Jack, he's going to pay <laughs> me, and I, I'm going to get to learn all these interesting things. Yeah, so it's just no. I was world. definitely the like get home from school, sit on AOL and instant message with friends until like 7 p.m. Yep. And 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 if I recall, a lot of it was literally just like half the time just like staring at the screen, like not even necessarily like actively having an interaction, right. just like waiting for someone to sign on so you could start a conversation with them. Sure, sure. It's like, like my kids today with Facebook Messenger for kids. Like, is that what it is now? Like Facebook Messenger is taken off for kids? So we have a, a third and a fourth grader. Facebook yeah. has this Messenger for Kids app. All of their friends are on it. Obviously with COVID, they yeah. can't see their friends. Like it's not safe to have them in the same room with their friends. Yeah. So they're basically chatting, playing games together, and then like somewhat controlled video chat version sure. with their friends. And they just, you know, it's like one of their friends, another. I mean, it's basically as soon as the, the Zoom classes are done for the day, that's what they're doing. <laughs> Man, 2020, that brings about different interactions, uh, if does. nothing else. All right, let's dive into our feature topic, which we talked about before, which this is the science of these massive growth catalyzing events. You touched on it before, but can you maybe expand on it a little bit? Like what made you and then your students initially decide to study how startups grow? And then what made you look specifically at these singular growth catalyzing events within a company life cycle to say, hey, that's an interesting point that we should be focusing in on? Yeah. So the second one first, the data really exposed that to us. We didn't start thinking that there would be, that that would be part of our model. In fact, when we really started, we were just assuming there was pre-product market fit and post-product market fit. But the more time we spent looking at these cases, the more it became clear that you needed this, this intermediate step. But in terms of why we started to look at it, that's an interesting story that I'll take a, take a minute on if it's okay. So I sure. had a, a robotics student master's in robotics student, which are some of my favorite. I mean, I love all my students at CMU, but that's a fun cohort of students to work with. These are the students who would go on to build self-driving cars or go work for SpaceX, right? It, you know, it, we have a, a world-class robotics program at Carnegie Mellon and, and uh, the students who, go, who come to work with us there are brilliant. And they're, they're engineers, engineers. So whereas I love teaching my MBAs, my MBAs are tend to be pretty dialed in to say the right things, give you positive feedback to try to help get a good grade. Your robotics students will tell you whatever they're thinking at any moment. And I had an extreme version of one of those one semester. And so he would come into class and he would take the conversation wherever he wanted to take it. And as we were leaving the class the last night, his name was Spencer. He said to me, you know, this was a great class. It was probably the best class I've taken at Carnegie Mellon. This was my lean entrepreneurship class. And I thought, wow, that's awesome. Um, and the lean entrepreneurship class I'd created is basically 
a combination of Steve Blank's stuff around four steps to the epiphany and Eric Reese's lean startup book. We took about two more steps and he said, you know, but it was also a total waste of time. Well, that's kind of more the feedback I would expect from someone like, he was like, well, tell me more. Like, why was it a waste of time? And he said, here's the problem. I've got $200,000 of student debt. Most of my classmates have visa constraints. We're not trying to decide, are we going to go do a startup ourselves, or are we going to go work for Google? We're trying to decide, should we join that Series A or Series B finance startup that's going to grow quickly, or should we go work for a company like Google? Mm. And he said, your class stops right at the point we'd be joining those companies. He's like, I want a class that's what comes after all your stories finish. And some candid feedback right there from a very, student. <laughs> very candid feedback. And it's, it illustrates a point that I think is important for all entrepreneurs, right? We tend to miss this, but all feedback's a gift. Mm-hmm. Like if you you know, if someone takes the time to give you feedback on your product or service, you need to take that as a gift, right? So I internalized it. And then serendipitously, the same night, Facebook had just announced their earnings and just shocked the world with their another record quarter. This was, you know, five or six years ago, but happens pretty regularly these days. <laughs> but I started thinking about it and I started thinking like, you know, it's really true. Like it's really this post-product market fit that has all this impact. And so what I started doing is I started just taking the smartest students from my lean entrepreneurship class, like the ones who just really impressed me. And I'd say, hey, you want to do an independent study next semester? And that's how the research started was just through these independent studies. And the independent study would be pick two companies that got to product market fit at about the same time and look at why one took off and one didn't. That was literally the entire prompt that we started with. And I think this is important because there's a lot of business research today that I would say that the sort of academic term for it is they select on the dependent variable. But Mm. what that means is they do research and they draw conclusions where the entire universe of the companies they study are the successful one. And then they say, We looked at all these successful companies. They did this. Therefore, if you do this, you too will be successful. Well, the problem with that is many of those things, also the unsuccessful companies did. To give an easy example, 100% of companies that achieve multi-billion dollar market caps have more than 100 employees. That doesn't mean if you have more than 100 employees, you will achieve a multi-billion dollar market cap, right? And that's sort of obvious, but what happens in a lot of business literature is we pick more nuanced and creative examples than more than 100 employees, but make that same logical flaw. And so what we were very committed at the beginning to was let's only look at companies where one took off and one didn't. And let's look at what's similar and at least as importantly, what's different between those pairs. So Facebook versus Friendster, Tesla versus Fisker. You know, and the, the students pick the cases. So there are a lot of tech companies, but then you get random ones every once in a while. I had a student who was really into restaurant tech and wanted to be a restaurateur uh, later in, in her life. And so she did McDonald's versus White Castle. What was fascinating about that is we saw a lot of the same things in the McDonald's White Castle that we saw in today's cases, you know, the, the Facebook Friendster, the Tesla Fisker examples, but it just took longer. Like things that took five years, 10 years in the McDonald's White Castle case might take five months in the Facebook Friendster case. So that's how we started. And then, as we, and then coming back to your, how do we focus on catalyzing events? Over and over again, we, we realized that, there, that our model at the beginning that we had, that we were p- pinning this stuff to kind of pre-product market fit and post-product market fit was flawed in a couple different ways. 
the biggest of which was we missed this whole middle category. And once we added this, this, third, this, this sort of middle category, made it a three-step model, it really started snapping into place. And then we were able to refine a little bit more the prerequisites, a little bit more the principles for long-term growth, and, and sort of focus in on how this catalyzing events happen and, and the stuff came together quickly. That's when I turned it into a course on campus. So it became an mm. elective on campus. The elective became very popular. And, and frankly, you know, from there then found a, an agent who, who wanted to turn it into a book, which was, which was kind of an unsurprised experience. And it's, it's kind of taken on a life of its own from there, to be honest. Well, the thing I want to really highlight there that I, I found just super interesting when we got introduced a few weeks back and had a, had a first discussion was that point you mentioned that I think most, if not all the other research tends to overlook, which is that point where they just pull from a data set of the successful companies and then say, oh, this must be why it worked. Not necessarily saying, yeah, but another company did the same thing and it didn't work. Correct. So what's the deal here? And so that's why I think this conversation is important. I think it's why, again, to all the people who are listening to this, it's why um, listening to or reading this book is so important because as you're building your respective companies, you have to know where the pitfalls are and you can't just say, oh, Facebook did it this way. Therefore, if we do it just like that, it's going to work because like, as you mentioned, there are things Friendster has also did that were the same and it didn't work. And we're going to get into that Facebook Friendster example here in a minute. One of the things you talk about in the book, so to even have that growth catalyzing event, you talk about four prerequisites for success. Right. They are, as you outlined, founder core vision, scalable idea, solves a real problem, and excellent first interaction. I don't want to necessarily go in detail through all four. I would like you, because I think the first three are pretty, um, at least self-explanatory from hearing them. Uh, founder core vision, scalable idea, sells a real problem. But that fourth one, if you could just expand upon that a little bit more, the excellent first interaction, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so this was probably the other way that the model was incorrect when we started for what it's worth around this mm. first interaction, right? So if you think about the term product market fit, I would say prerequisites two and three are basically a, a different way of attacking product market fit. And I would say prerequisite one is to some extent founder market fit. Mm -hmm. Right. So you're so those are sort of well-known terms and things that we kind of expected, anticipated seeing, did end up seeing. But the other thing that became really interesting, and we we went back and forth on this. I'm glad we landed where we did, but we went back and forth. There was a period of time where we actually broke it into four steps. There was solve the prerequisites, take friction out of the process, catalyzing events, long-term sustainable growth. Right. But part of what I realized is the, the reality is it really is just part of the prerequisite. And what I mean by prerequisite is just like for anybody who's taken a high school or college class and been told this is your prerequisite for that class, I mean exactly the same thing there. You can't focus on catalyzing growth until you satisfy all four prerequisites, just like you can't take calculus until you know algebra. Mm. And what I realized is that fourth prerequisite is one that way too many people overlook when they're thinking about growth, because you get through the first three and then investors like myself, or, you know, if you're not, if you're bootstrapping it, family members, friends, people sort of outside influences start saying, okay, great. You know, you finally gotten there. It took you longer than you thought for you to get there. Let's go, go, go at this point. Right. And, and what you realize is if you, if you, if you pour gas on the fire before you get that excellent first interaction, 
you'll end up just wasting a tremendous amount of energy. So what I mean by that excellent first interaction is there is something magical about a consumer's first interaction with your product. This is true in enterprise tech, consumer tech, whatever. This is also true across demographics. The easy example that I often point to on why some is important for consumers is go to YouTube, search for the term unboxing. There are literally lifetimes of content <laughs> of people watching other people take products out of the box. As you were talking about the importance of excellent first interaction, the image I had in my head was opening the iPhone box and how it slowly pulls out. That's right. No matter how That's hard right. you pull, if you want to, it still is like right. slowly pulls out and then it, it reveals itself in front of you. That's right. That's exactly right. And so now here's what you'll offer. Here's the pushback you probably wouldn't give, but if I were giving this to your audience and they were able to interact with me, I can almost guarantee you right now, someone would raise their hand and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true for kids and 20 something guys, right? That's true mm -hmm. for toys and consumer electronics. But you know, I'm a 45 year old soccer mom and I don't care about a first interaction. And if she said that to me, I would say, okay, what's your favorite television show? And, and there'd be a 90% chance, because I've done this enough times across the, the country and world at this point, yeah. a 90% chance in the US that her answer would be HGTV, which is basically unboxing for real estate. <laughs> right? If you talk to an NBC executive about HGTV, they feel the same way about uh, HGTV that most consumer media tech feels about these YouTube unboxing videos, like, you know, medium budget. Yeah. Know, I don't really understand why it's so popular, but you know, people have built empires. I mean, uh, go to Waco, Texas, that the team there has literally built an empire around this concept of, uh, unbox of sort of helping people buy a home, renovate the home. And then what's the mountaintop moment in each of those episodes? What's well, the, the husband and wife team pulling the, the old picture of the house away and then the watching the new homeowners walk through the house. It's basically creating yeah. an unboxing mode. We care a lot about the first interaction with the product. And the reality is whether it's a technology product, whether it's a video game, whether it's a piece of software, whether it's an iPhone, that first interaction matters a lot and it has a huge impact on your ability to scale and grow. Yeah. And, and what I came to appreciate was like, we just need to call this out like we call out the other parts of it. And so that's ultimately where we landed on this as your, your fourth and final prerequisite. And one more thing I wanna add on that note of what you said about like a TV show. When I teach my startup pitch workshops uh, and I talk about the importance of like a good elevator pitch, yeah. the parallel example I will give is the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And I'll have everyone in the room or virtually, like we'll sing, we'll sing the song together. Yep. And I'm like, that's like, that's the, to use your words, which I haven't used before, but that's the excellent first interaction. That's right. Right. And it's, that's it's right. such a good first interaction that 30 years later, we all still know the song. And it, what it does is it, it create it sets the table for what the show, what the episode is going to be about and gets you hooked in, in some way. A hundred percent. I, I mean, we, I just last, no, I just two nights ago now, took a group of MBAs through, they, they were doing their, their elevator pitches last night. So they've been working on for a week. And, and we, yeah. what we did is, because you know, we're doing school remote distributed this year, sort of mm -hmm. in this hybrid format, but my class yeah. is large enough that my class is 100% over Zoom, right? So we put them in a bunch of different breakout rooms and they 
listened to one pitch and and gave two pitches. And I think entrepreneurs under they tend to think about elevator pitches. And this is sort of the the thing. This is sort of the reveal of the class that night, right? They tend to focus on that elevator pitches. This is how I pitch for money. Right? That's, that's where their head goes to because they've seen you know Shark Tank, yeah, right, uh, or whatever. And there's you know like. But, but actually what you're saying is, is what they miss and it ties into this. What it actually is, is it's the foundation upon which they're going to build all of their communication yes. vehicles yes. going forward. Oh right? my it's, God. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> right. And so what this means is if you're an entrepreneur who's like, you know what? I want to bootstrap my business for whatever reason. Great. You absolutely should do that. You still should spend time having a great elevator pitch because you want to make sure that your sales messaging lines up with your recruiting messaging, which lines up with the copy on mm-hmm. your website, which lines up with how you talk to um, employees at the beginning of every all hands meeting, right? Your elevator pitch is much more than the pitch to get money. And I think we've minimized it. And as it relates to this first interaction, having that concrete and well thought out foundation in place right? Now you can ask yourself as you're going through, and I encourage people to literally do this. If you're a CEO of a startup, you should on a regular basis, go to one of these services that records people using your system and record, you know, five new people being onboarded each week and send those videos around the entire office Mm -hmm. every week. Because at this early stage, you want to make it painful if there's friction that's, that's staying in that process week after week after week. And so you can use your elevator pitch as a lens into that. Is this consistent with how I'm talking about my business to each of those different stakeholders? Let's transition now into this growth catalyzing concept. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when we consider the idea of a catalyst, yep. and specifically a growth catalyzing event, you know, the, the, and, and the term catalyst catalytic, whatever comes sure. from the world of science and chemistry. That's right. Um, so in this context, are we borrowing directly from the science world or how, how should we define it, a growth catalyst in the terms of a company? Yes. So we're borrowing from that in the sense that it's something else that comes in that creates this reaction that changes the slope of the line, right? So it's something inorganic coming into the business and changing the slope of the line. And here's, I think, why... This wasn't obvious to us when we started, and it's also why you don't see a lot of startup literature talk about this for what it's worth. The challenge is that unlike the prerequisites and unlike phase three, I'm not arguing that every startup should do all four of these catalyzing events. My, my argument is that these catalyzing events, you should think of as more like a Chinese menu. Like which of these four things works for my startup that could change the slope of the line once I've achieved the four, first four prerequisites. So not every startup is going to do all four of the catalyzing events, but every startup we looked at did at least one of them and did it really well, and it did transform their growth rate. Well, maybe we should just then quickly go over what are the four types of catalyzing sure. events. So there's viral growth, there's drafting off of off of platforms, right, where you're part of a bigger platform. Uh, So PayPal and eBay is a good example of that. There is uh, opportunity for what I call double trigger events, right? So, So double trigger events are these things where that later we often talk about as like, that's what 
launched this thing, right? Like, oh, Twitter launched at South by Southwest. No, Twitter didn't launch at South by Southwest. Twitter blew up at South by Southwest, but Twitter had been around for 10 months before South by Southwest. Or the Airbnb, you know, well, they launched at the DNC convention. No, they, they'd been around for a long time before that, but this was the event that, that catalyzed their growth, right? And then the last one is optimizing algorithms, um, which people tend to think about as like, oh, that's like, you know, SEO or app store optimization. The real art to optimizing algorithm, and I feel even stronger about this four years after the book came out, the real art to the optimizing algorithm, if that's the approach you're going to take, is can you find emerging algorithms where there's arbitrage opportunities to make that happen before anybody else gets there, right? So today, trying to win and try to catalyze growth on the Google search algorithm is probably going to be somewhere between difficult and impossible. But, but 17 I had a lot of years ago, correct. I had a lot of friends 17 years ago that own a lot of houses and a lot of boats because they, they out optimized the Google algorithm when there was a ton of arbitrage opportunity. Mm-hmm. Similarly, you know, when the iPhone first came out and the app store was first launched sort of subsequent to the iPhone coming out, there were huge opportunities to optimize the app store algorithm. Today, the Apple App Store is a fairly efficient market and so an efficient algorithm. And so it's hard to, to out-optimize those. But what you want to be doing as an entrepreneur around that technique is looking like, hey, you know, is there a new one coming up that I can take advantage before all of this has, has played out? I wonder if we could do this, Sean, because I, I want to get into specific examples. I know we're running close to time, though, for today. Would you sure. be willing to come back and do a part two where we Absolutely. go through these individual examples of companies? Absolutely. Sure. Happy Perfect. to. Let's do that then. So everybody listening, uh, Sean and I are going to get together again uh, and we are going to talk about specific examples comparing things like Facebook versus Friendster. We'll talk about LinkedIn versus a company called Spoke, which you may never heard of. I know I certainly have never heard of it. We'll talk through the Airbnb example. We'll talk through WordPress and others. And we're going to really unpack like what did these things we've talked about sort of at a high level thus far, what did it look like boots on the ground for each of these companies? Um, and what did Sean learn through him and his team's research? So Sean, I will welcome you back for a part two very soon. Everyone listening, this episode ends. The part two is going to start playing, so stick around for that. So Sean, thank you so much, and we will talk again uh, very soon. Awesome. That wraps up today's conversation. Did you like what you heard? Startup Hype Man, the podcast is available on every major platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and more. So be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice and leave a rating and review. Do you want to be an upcoming guest on the show? Email media at startuphypeman.com with your idea and my team will review. Our theme song is Change the Game by Jay-Z, all rights owned by Rockefeller and Def Jam Records. And hey, if you want to work together on making your startup story the only one that matters, email me at rajiv at startuphypeman.com. That's R-A-J-I-V at startuphypeman.com. Well, that'll do it for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you to today's guests for joining. You have been checking out Startup Hype Man, the podcast. I'll catch you next week. But in the meantime, word up, raise up.